0: Welcome to FebRow, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use concept questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host, and joining me today is Louise Plaza. Louise is a senior medical laboratory scientist in microbiology at Advent Health in Orlando, Florida. He is also the creator and host of Let's Talk Micro, a podcast that explains clinical microbiology in simple terms, suitable for students and microbiologists. He loves to teach about clinical micro and his experiences in the clinical micro lab. So as everyone's uh, favorite culture podcast, we'd love to hear a little piece of culture that brings you happiness Is something that you maybe have enjoyed reading or listening to recently.
1: So I definitely, you know, I, outside of microbiology, which is, you know, a huge love, I definitely am a big Harry Potter fan. I remember when all the books came out and it was so exciting. I mean, I was a little bit kind of on the older side, more like older teenager, but it was so exciting. And when the first film came out, I watched it three days, uh, three times the same day. And uh, I was actually, I had the opportunity to go to London and see the studio where they filmed the the movie. So that was such a great experience. And outside of that, definitely, I enjoy cooking and um, coffee.
0: Love it. Yeah, lots of cooking <laughs> um, ones on here. Um, Alright, so you know, I wanted to create this episode to to try and cover what everyone needs to know about blood cultures. And it's really an essential test for us in ID and microbiology. Um, but really walking through what is the journey from getting the blood from the patient sample. So the vein to the lab to sort of the result you see on the other end as the clinician and um, so we're going to walk through some of those steps and I think this hopefully will encourage people to to think about this in in ways that maybe you, for example, if you're an ID fellow, when you're on your microbiology block, you probably will get to experience some of this. Um, but I think this is actually a really nice topic to talk to learners on the ID team, because sometimes I think it's a little bit of a <laughs> black box. So I thought we would start with the foundations, which is really the actual collection of the blood cultures. And there's a couple points that I wanted to emphasize here. The first is that, Proper skin prep and disinfection is really essential to prevent contamination of blood cultures. And so the guidance is to disinfect the bottle tops themselves, the blood culture bottles, and we'll talk more about those, um, with alcohol, and then actually disinfecting the phlebotomy site, um, with chlorhexidine, or, um, the other listed one is 2% iodine tincture. And then an important part of that is allowing the disinfectant to dry. And this is for adults and children who are over two months old. We've talked about this next point in other episodes as well, just to say out loud that one blood culture set means one aerobic bottle and one anaerobic bottle from the same draw. And, you know, even if anaerobes are low on the differential, an anaerobic bottle should ideally still be collected because some bacteria do grow faster in the anaerobic bottle. Um, I feel like that's pretty common on the adult side. I will say on the Pediatric side, sometimes people will just grab aerobic cultures. Um, I think maybe in an effort to, to draw less blood in smaller patients, but it really can uh, be a benefit in certain clinical settings. The next piece is this consensus guidelines and expert panels recommend peripheral venipuncture as your preferred technique for getting a blood culture that's less likely to be contaminated compared to sort of a draw from an intravascular catheter or some other device. And as everyone probably knows, contaminants typically are from the skin and can be common. I was reading about, I actually don't know how often these are used. I know there are products that allow for diversion and discard, discarding the first few mls of blood to try to decrease contamination rates, but I think that those are a little bit more expensive. Louise, do you have any other thoughts on that?
1: One thing we do is, as you mentioned, with contamination rates, that's something that we keep track of and it's something that based on the type of bottle um you know and then we also keep track of who collected the bottle and it's used as an educational tool that way and we'll talk more about this as we go on but definitely that way if we see a person that there's a pattern maybe that they're not realizing that they're not you know performing the procedure properly then you know that person will get like a retraining some sort of re-education and and just for the on the side of the text, yeah, with contamination, something that you know we're we're aware of. Um, but yeah,
0: so generally the you know the blood, like you were saying, collected a needle and syringe, they can be. Uh, collected directly into the culture bottle with the collection system. And again, we're gonna talk about blood culture bottles a little bit more. Um, If a needle or syringe is used, the needle does not need to be changed between collection and inoculating the blood culture system. It doesn't help to reduce contamination rates and just adds a unnecessary extra risk of a needle stick injury. We're not gonna get into specifics about catheter-associated bacteremia, but I will point out that we did have an episode um, number sixty for February, where we talked a little bit about catheter-associated bacteremia. Okay, so that's the beginning foundations, and then the other, I would say, most important thing to point out for the collection piece is that volume is really the most important factor for a successful blood culture. So it's the volume of the blood collected, not the timing that's most critical. Uh, Something that I did not know before we prepped for this episode is that most septic patients have anywhere from maybe one to five CFUs per ml of the bacteria in their blood, but um, it may actually be that it's less than one. So you can see why bacteremia could easily be missed by drawing too little blood. And so there are some references that we will put in the consult notes, um, but there actually are specific uh, guides from the IDSA that I'll point out there's Uh, article, The Guide to Utilization of the Microbiology Lab for Diagnosis of Infectious Diseases, a 2018 update by IDSA and American Society for Micro. It covers a whole lot more than what we're talking about, but has a section on blood cultures. And then there also is a CLSI book, The Principles and Procedures for Blood Cultures, the M47, which actually was just updated in 2022. It's not one of the listed free CLSI handbooks, but I'm guessing most of the labs probably have access to that.
1: Yes, you know, at the very least, like all the ones that are not listed, and you know, I always talk about this on episodes, you know, great resources and a lot of text in the lab they are actually not familiar with them. And you see everyone just going to the one binder that we have in the laboratory. So it's just, there is, you know, the most common ones, you know, the M100, the M45. So they're on that website. Um, this one, at the very least, you know, your manager, your director, your clinical microbiologist, your, like your PhD, your MD, he should have a copy of that at the very least. Um, mm-hmm. And if you ever want to do a little bit more of reading or, you know, educate yourself a little bit more, they're also available for for purchase. And while you were talking about the volume, you know, I mentioned that the contamination rates, you know, they're monitored and so is the volume. So that's something that we keep track on a monthly basis. And, you know, we, we measure some, you know, we take an X amount of bottles, we measure the volume, and then it's either... You know, correct volume, underfill, overfill, and then we do provide that information to the to the different nursing departments for the same purpose. So make sure they're aware that if there's some retraining or some sort of education needs to happen again, you know, it can take place.
0: Yeah. Um, And so if if people look in the details of those references, and actually, if you look in a lot of the major ID textbooks like Mandel, uh, you'll also find these noted. But for volume in adults, 20 to 30 mLs is recommended to be collected per set. So collected and distributed over the several bottles. So that works out to maybe 10 mLs per bottle. And although this concept of spacing the blood culture draws we commonly talk about and it gets practiced, there actually is very little evidence to support the need for this. Meaning separation of blood culture draws over time really is not a standard for routine collection. And I thought it would be Useful just to point out for those who, re, um, who are up to date on the new endocarditis guidelines, for example, that talk about the Duke criteria, they actually updated to, to reflect the same concept. From a pediatric standpoint, there are weight-based and age-based guidelines. The weight-based guidelines recommend collecting 1% to 4% of the patient's total blood volume. And if pediatric bottles are used, a maximum of 5 mLs can be added to the bottle. All right. So we've collected the blood from the patient. They've gone into the bottles and the blood culture bottles are shipped and arrived to the clinical lab. What do we do next? What are the next steps?
1: So they arrive to the lab and then you know once we go through the whole typical processing like with any sample, right, you know receiving it and so we have, you know, automated blood culture instruments where we will load these bottles, you know, and most most laboratories, you know, especially nowadays in, in this times Everyone has at least some sort of variation, whether smaller, larger. And I'll be talking about some a couple systems here that are the most common ones, which are the, you know, the Bacti Alert and then the updated version, which is the virtual, and then the BDFX. So most labs have either one of those two. So we get the bottles, and then they get loaded on the instrument. Um, typically, we have to make sure that we have, because the bottle comes with a barcode, which that's what the instrument will scan and it recognizes, you know, if it's an aerobic, anaerobic bottle, pediatric. And then we also have the patient's label. So we have to make sure we don't cover one or the other because the instrument is going to get confused. So basically the, the instrument will scan the bottle and then it will link the patient's information to that bottle with your LIS. And that's about it. So it's about, you know, you keep them for about five days. They are monitored for growth every 10 to 24 minutes. And both systems, basically, the, this, the, the science of it, it's, it's the same. It's just, you know, it is measuring, the bottles have a, a membrane that is permeable to carbon dioxide. And that's what is measured as bacteria grow. And, you know, carbon dioxide, you know, CO2 is produced. And also as a part of their metabolism, you know, that is measured. And then, you know, there's a pH change. And that acidification is, is measured. So with the virtual, the biomirer, uh it's a colorimetric reaction. And when the BD is a fluorometric reaction, and that's what tells you, you know, it flags that it's positive. So then as far as, you know, the the type of bottles and I can, uh, like we talked about with the sets, you know, you have an aerobic, anaerobic, pediatric. And with both systems, it's, you know, it's about the same. You know, you have, for example, like with the virtual or the biomario system, you know, some of them, they have some beads for, you know, for suppressing the the antibiotics, or there's some resin as well. And, you know, both systems have some variation of this in order to suppress the, you know, the, the antibiotics. And so... If you're familiar with this, you know, some bottles are like your, you know, your FA, your FA plus, you know, from the um, BDFX, you have the tech bottles. But they all work around the same, you know, the same way. One thing you have to keep in mind, sometimes, you know, there's a pediatric bottle that has charcoal. And for text out there, you know, you have to make sure that when you're reading them, there's a lot of debris. So sometimes it might be hard to visualize your yeast or your gram positive coxine clusters.
0: So are the resin supplement or I guess resin bead bottles very common, or is that something that may depend on what individual labs order as part of their inventory?
1: No, you are correct. Not all bottles do. I mean it's all it's all based on, on I will say on on your type of volume and, and no, a lot of these things sometimes you know they they tie it up to what type of budget you have and you know what can you justify as far as getting instruments and getting certain supplies but not all of them have the the resin or the beats so if you're looking at the at the at the virtual or back to alert those are like the fa plus um fn plus or fan uh plus so those are the ones that actually have the the beats and then from okay. the Bactik, the Bactic Plus, those have the beads as well. Well, in this and for bd is actually resin. Okay. But yeah, but not all of them do. So if they don't have that, typically, like if they don't have that plus attached to it, it's just they don't have the the resin or the beads.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we talked about typically blood cultures are incubated for about five days. And... I know I tell my patients that, you know, generally if they are gonna be positive, that they will be positive within the first 48 hours. I think some of the historical teaching that uh, hopefully is continuing to be undone is the idea that Hasek and some other organisms like abiotrophia and granulicotella need some type of special blood culture procedure. But I know now these can be pretty readily isolated in our current routine blood cultures. Are there any remaining scenarios where incubation beyond five days is necessary or helpful?
1: Um, no. I mean, like you said, the the before, the thinking was especially, you know, with if you suspecting Brucella, which I always hope that if you're suspecting that, that you tell the lab. Um, because we all been there where we have a case and people are exposed. And, you know, like you mentioned, haystack organisms, uh, nutritionally deficient strep, so that was the idea to uh, extend the time and for a cutie bacterium, you know, which used to be called Propionibacterium. So for those, but you can definitely detect them within the five days. Um, especially now as the instruments progress and these bottles now they have all the all the nutrients you know that the organisms require to be grow. And I work with the virtual and we definitely, you know, we isolate um, Hemophilus, you know, we get Kingella, we get Cardiobacterium, so we don't miss these bugs. So that was, yeah, that was the thinking. I think maybe a special case might be like uh, Bartonella, but by then you really have to be suspecting it and and tell the you know tell the lab so we can extend it. So Cutibacterium, we actually typically within day four it will pop positive on the bottles, so it doesn't need that extended. I know, like, definitely for when you get, like, cultures that are non-blood, you know, we get requests to hold them for 14 days and, and things like that. But for this, all these organisms, they will grow within the five-day period.
0: We're not really going to focus on fungal and mycobacterial blood cultures, but I can't, <laughs> I can't be a nighty fellow and not make the point that fungal isolator cultures with the prolonged incubation are specifically used for recovery of dimorphic fungi, molds, Mycobacteria, you know, Nocardia may show up, although you potentially would get Nocardia in a routine blood culture, and they are not for Candida, which will grow in standard blood cultures. I I think that's something that is still is quite common and a teaching point that we talk to to teams about. Um, I think they don't realize that it's a lot of work on the other end um, for our micro colleagues.
1: Yes, definitely. Like you mentioned, you know, all the Candida, Cryptococcus, you know, they will grow in your regular blood culture bottles. You know, and they're within one day, you know, within twenty four hours. Bacteria you can get them sometimes as quick as six, you know, eight hours, um, sometimes even before then. But all the you know, the all the like Candida tropicalis, Candida albicans, all the species of Candida that we typically see in you know, in fungimia, we uh they will grow on this type of bottles. So and like you mentioned with the work, yes, because sometimes they they will order the regular set and then we'll we'll get one of these bottles. So we have to process everyone as a separate you know, entity. So we have to play them and then you know go through the whole process, which I'll talk more about in a little bit. Uh but just for a note for the so that bottle, you know, it's a it's the lytic uh mycofungal bottle, and it has a middle brook and ferric ammonium citrate. And it just provides ions for some mycobacteria and fungi. And in that type, if if, if it's for um, fungi, you will uh, select the incubation time for 28 days. And if it's for mycobacterium, you will select it for 42 days. So better said, actually, the default for this bottle is 42 days. So if you have a fungal culture, you will adjust it to twenty-eight. I see. Okay.
0: All right. So we have our bottles. They were loaded on the blood culture instrument. We've now gotten a flag that something's positive. You talked a little bit about where that signal's from, but you know, what do we do next now that we have this flag? Um, and how do we move forward?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And this is from the from the text, you know, like this is actually one of the most important cultures that we can have you know I, I like to sometimes when i'm teaching students you know when it comes to blood cultures and csf you know that's you know in terms of like theory you know that's that's opening night you know we we don't want to mess it up everything else is you know we're rehearsing leading to that moment we <laughs> want to be ready don't miss that smear so that bottle flags so a couple of things that sometimes you know you have to keep in mind with the systems i mentioned the bdfx and I mentioned like the systems that BioMario makes, like the Back-T, uh 3D and the virtual. So the Bakhti 3D and the BDFX, you actually have to open the drawers and manually load the bottles in. So sometimes in a large facility, as you're opening and closing, you know, that will mess with the temperature. So sometimes you, know, you can get bottles that will flag as positive. So that's one thing to keep in mind. With the virtual, it's a closed system. So you load the bottles and you're not going to see them until they're actually positive. The system would actually discard the negative bottles after five days. So if everything goes, mo- goes smoothly. You never see that negative bottle again, no, or that's it. So with the virtual, because it's a closed system, you can get bottles sometimes popping positive flagging positive as soon as three hours, maybe four. Um, so also white blood cells can, you know, uh, make the bottles flag positive. So that's something that you have to keep in mind. So with the with a system, uh, a closed system like the virtual, it's always good for you to make a cytospin. Um, because, you know, so you get the bottle, you play it on media, you make your smear. But it is definitely, I advise that you always make a cytospin because on instruments like the virtual, since it's a closed system, it can flag positive around you know three hours, and you can have a very low amount of organism, and you might miss it. And I've seen it happen before, so definitely that's something to keep in mind. Do your cytospin, and um, and other than that, you know you will make your smear. Um, there's some systems out there where you know you can either use a syringe, or there's like some devices where you you know, stick them directly to the bottle, and then you can use it to drop your bullets. You know, sometimes, you know, be careful because they might be gas in the bottle and, you know, you might get some blood coming out. So always work them and, you know, in a hood.
0: All right. And um, so we we get the gram stain. Let's say, you know, that gets updated. So people might see now we have GPCs and clusters in a book culture. I thought this next part we could talk a little bit more about how we get to the actual identification. And I know there are lots of options for that, and everyone's lab might be a little bit different, but maybe you can walk us through some of the more common strategies that labs use. Definitely.
1: So while while you're preparing your smear, you're actually uh, placing your sample in media or agar. And your, typically, you know, your typical blood culture setup, it's blood agar, chocolate, and McConkie. So that will be... Cover all your bases, you know, your McConkie for your gram-negative rots. Most of them will grow on You know, blood will grow both gram-positive and gram-negative and yeast. And so can chocolate. If you have a smear where you're seeing gram-negative rots and gram-positive cocci or, 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 or gram-positive rots, you will add a PEA or a CNA. That way you can give the gram-positive organism a chance to be isolated. And then if you see yeast, you can also, you know, add one of the, like a candida or chrome auger. Um, if for some reason, if you see, uh, sometimes, you know, you can see like like true hyphae, you can add some fungal media to it. So that's your, your standard setup. Uh, and then, you know, you put that in the, in the incubator and, you know, and you will read it 18 to 24 hours later. But before you get to that point, and typically that's a separate site in most labs, you have some texts that are reading positive blood cultures. And you have texts that are reading the plates. So when you're making that smear, like you said, a like great example. So you read it, grand positive coxine clusters. You make a phone call. You know, we have to call blood cultures and let the provider know what we have. If you're in a situation where you cannot really tell if it's, you know, clusters or if it's chains, you know, clusters for like about maybe staff, or chains for like strep, at that point in time, maybe just call the gram positive cocci and wait till you actually get an ID. But it is something, you know, it is a critical value and you have to notify someone. And then depending on, on the lab that you work on, you know, there's definitely many PCR instruments where you can actually get an ID before you even see the plate grown up. So, you know, very convenient, saves time. Uh, most of the time, there are some limitations, but it worked well. And, and that way, you know, you can provide, you can give the, the physician or the healthcare care provider um, the idea of the organism. So there are some there. So you have systems like um, you have the film array, you know, very popular, very easy to set up. You know, it's just, you know, it's, the setup is very quick and it will actually test for all the targets in one test. So it screens for, you know, your basic, your staph aureus, some species of coagulase negative staph, like staph epidermidis, staphylococcus lugdunensis, your main Enterobacteriales, you know, especially like your, you know, your E. coli produce enterobacter. And then you will also, uh, it has yeast as targets. So, and actually, before it was lacking a little bit of the resistance, you know, genes, but now they came up with a second version. By now, like a probably like a couple of years ago, then now we can detect even more. You also have the, what used to be called the nanosphere, but now it's the Luminex Virgin, gram-positive and gram-negative blood culture test. This one also, it will identify about the same organisms as your film array. But however, you know, the setup is a little bit different. Each test has like about three components, and there are some things that you have to keep in mind, and it has like a slide that you have to make sure that sometimes, if there's humidity in the lab, and you can get um, um, invalid results. So you have to keep you know that in mind. Um, also, you have the eplex from Germark. Very easy to set up. It has a separate test cassette for your gram positive, your gram negative, and there's also a fungal cassette. And it actually that one detects all your candida species that you see typically, and also the tex fusarium and rhodotorula. So they don't have their pros and cons. What well, you have to keep sure with the systems is that they have limitations. So sometimes you can get an idea of one organism and maybe you know it's, there's like some cross-reaction when it comes to it. You know, I have seen it with the Luminex. It used to happen sometimes with um, strep and streptococcus pneumoniae. So it will, the printer will get, okay, we have streptococcus pneumoniae. You set it up. And then on the plate, what it grows is strep mitis. And then after finally verifying it, you have to make a correction. And that brings me to when you're setting up the plates and stuff, uh, the same uh, if you see if you see gram-positive cocci, like in pairs and chains, a lot of labs, they will add an uptick in disc. So make sure that way you kind of start a little bit ahead and when it grows if you see that zone of inhibition you know it helps you rule in or rule out uh, streptococcus pneumonia and then of of course um once it's actually uh there's also um the molotov right everyone nowadays is talking about the molotov very popular (laughs) i have my i have my reservations about it but it's very helpful overall i just you know my my pet peeves come come when to when people in the lab just use that all the time, and they don't train their eyes to identify the organism, but it's very helpful. Um, it has been used, and you know, even you subculture the the blood, and after two to six hours, you can go ahead and um, try to get an ID. But also, once you have it on the plate, it's the main method of identification if you have it in the lab. So you use it for that. Yeah. So it's, it's you use it for you use it in the lab. So definitely uh, very popular and some other things. So um, as far as, you know, that's for ID and sometimes, you know, with, with blood cultures jumping a little bit on susceptibilities. Um, sometimes, you know, they can even do you can do performance directly as long as you have validated, of course, directly from the blood culture sample. So without growing on the plate. And that's actually something that we do in my facility with gram negative so we just you know we go ahead and we do an ID on on um on the Eplex and then once we get that ID uh, we set up the the susceptibility card
0: that was one of my questions so for for the rapid multiplex assays are those those are usually done off of blood from the bottle versus the MALDI-TOF is off of a uh basically a short Shortly incubated subculture is that right?
1: Yes, yes, correct. So yeah, all the okay. systems that I mentioned, you know, your eplex, your film array, your luminex, those are actually you have an aliquot of your blood. So you don't, yeah, you're not mixing. So you're just you're loading it into that cassette, um, depending on what system you have, and then it produces an ID. Uh, so you know, it's a PCR method, uh, but yeah, with the Molotov, it's you already have something growing on the plate. And some places can do, like after a short incubation time, uh, but other places, you know, if you have a very wide, you know, a good platform where you get a, you know, a good ID, typically you will wait till that uh, culture is actually grown. And then as soon as you get that plate within your 18, 24 hours, then you put it on the Molotov. Yeah. But at that point in time, they already have the ID from the, from the PCR instrument um, mm-hmm. There's some logistics with that when with the short um, subculture time, because you have to make sure that maybe you have an incubator that is not used as often. You know, people go in and out of the lab opening incubators and sometimes the bugs, you know, they can take a while to grow.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I was looking into this. I actually am at a uh, currently the hospitals I've been at have do not use any of these more rapid sort of multiplex assays but I've uh, seen them from, from other hospitals and I, I did look into this you know certainly they, they have costs associated with them in addition to the parts you were mentioning and there are some studies looking at trying to understand that sort of weighing that economic versus clinical benefits it seems like most of the studies do seem to suggest that there is a decrease in time to how when we optimize their antibiotics and you know I think big picture wise it's not quite as conclusive as far as how much it impacts mortality and how long patients are in the hospital but um, that's at least what, what literature is out there so far great Um, And then, you know, we're not going to talk too much about interpretation of cultures. Uh, We have talked a little bit in a prior episode and have a graphic thinking about sort of common blood culture contaminants. But I I want to sort of see how you kind of wrap this together. If there are other things that are important about the process of getting a blood culture, like we said, from, from the patient all the way to the report at the end. Um, are there common questions that you get a lot about blood cultures that you wish people knew the answers
1: to? Yeah, thank you. So definitely with, uh, like I mentioned, that that Cytospin, not many people mm-hmm. you see that is. you do your original smear, you scan it. And with these systems, normally what you will do is you don't see anything on the slide, so you don't report anything. You internally document, you know, not, no organism seen on the smear. And then you put the bottle in, again, the instrument. And then if it flax again, you do the same process. But after that, you will proceed to a manual incubation method uh, where you will, you know, every day you will monitor You look for that, um, that change because when that CO2 is produced and that acidification, there's a color change at the bottom of the bottle. So normally they're green and they change to yellow. So you're looking at, at that when you're doing that visual examination of the bottle. So that cytospin is definitely very important to make sure if you're using a microscope, you know, where you have all immersion, you, know, you have your 100x, but if you have a 50x, definitely take a look. Sometimes, you know, you might see a, you get a wider uh, picture, and then you might see a yeast that, you know, there's not enough, not a lot of it. And then, you know, you might see them on the corners. You know, with micro, it's, it's, it's all about time, right? So it's just organisms take a while to grow. So if you miss stuff like that, not only can you potentially, you know, put your patient in harm's way, but at the same time, it will cost you in the lab time because then you have to plate it, wait for it to grow more. Um, so that's that's very important. And then definitely, just when you're processing, you know your media. That's very important. Know what grows on it. Know what doesn't grow on it. What could potentially grow on it. And start having this thought process that if you see. You know, like if you see gram-positive coxine chains, it's not growing on your plate. Start thinking about that nutritionally deficient strep. Uh, make sure you have anaerobes, you know, anaerobic agar plated. You might have an anaerobic gram-positive cocci. So with the automated system, you know, with the PCR, blood culture systems, make sure it makes sense. Like, like I mentioned, that, um, that cross-reactivity from the strep mites to the strep pneumo if you're looking at it, it doesn't really look like a lancet shape. You know your typical streptococcus pneumoniae morphology. Maybe just hold on on that ID. Maybe just document it internally. Wait till it grows on the plate, and then you can make the proper, you know, the proper ID, the proper move. It's just you know sometimes you know we want to move fast because we're thinking about the, you know, the patients. You know that's what we do it for. But sometimes, you know, we move too fast and then we have to slow down and that's when we can do a little bit of, of damage there. So make sure that if, de- if it makes sense, um, if it doesn't make sense, hold on the ID. If you get sometimes, you know, two or three targets, make sure that you kind of maybe document them internally before you start calling your doctor and saying, hey, you know, I have, I have Eclefstila, you know, Enterobacter, Pseudomonas, and then all of a sudden, you know, they go ahead and you know, do the treatment, and then all of a sudden, you have maybe one organism growing. So, so, that's just, you know, there's some things that I have seen. And I think if you follow these steps and sometimes take care, every now and then, I know it's just in micro, you have to slow down a little bit to make sure that you make the right choice. And at the end, that's, you know, that's, it's going to help your patient. Um, one more thing with the systems when you have like any, any resistant, you know, genes, also be careful with those. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have a great scenario, it detects Staphylococcus aureus, Staphylococcus epidermidis, MEK-A is detected. So you just kind of, some places will go ahead and say, okay, we detect the Staph aureus, Staph epidermidis, and then a comment saying, MEK-A gene was detected, uh, we'll update when you know, it's growing on the plate, you know, something along those lines. So make sure that you don't start assigning it to someone and you get a case where you, you, know, you have a you report a MRSA and then it comes back being MSSA. So that's my my advice. Definitely read your package inserts. You know, that's just that's what you learn. Learn the limitations of your instrument. And that's it. But other than that, you'll be fine. It's all about, you know, repetition practice.
0: Yeah. And that's you know, that's just great general advice if something doesn't quite fit or align, like from the other end, sometimes if we see something result, and we're like, oh, that's kind of not what we expected, making sure to just open that conversation and, and ask your, you know, micro colleagues to help walk you through it, uh, you know, and answer questions that maybe it stands out to you like, oh, this isn't quite what I
1: expected. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that with the way to survive in microbiology, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about confidence and that is acquired yeah it's just if you second guess yourself all the time you are going to be in for a very long day micro so you need that confidence that comes from a place from educating yourself and repetition you know you see the cultures over and over and over again and that's when you start getting familiar with these patterns but definitely you know use the resources but if something doesn't make sense it's just even if it feels a little bit weird you know, I have learned this over the years. You know, you want to call it whatever, like, right? like the the spidey sense or whatnot or <laughs> something that is telling you, hey, this is wrong. And just tell someone as a colleague, you know, as your director, as like like an experienced tech, even if you what you were thinking is not what you were thinking, but at the very least, you made sure. And this is, that's just, you know, what I can tell the audience out there.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to check out Let's Talk Micro, Louise's podcast. Here are some episodes that he recommended that may pair well with this one. Episode four, which talks about blood culture gram stains. Episodes 24 and 25, which dig into Malditoff, And then some more recent ones, uh, episode 81 and 82, which looks at discrepancies between genotypic and phenotypic testing in microbiology. As always, don't forget to check out the website, febralpodcast.com, where you'll find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any questions, suggestions for future shows, or want to be more involved with Febral. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.